Hi, I'm Carl Coates in Chicago. I taught Elise High School Social Studies. This week on the show from Chicago, host of WBEZ's Nerdette podcast, Greta Johnson, and host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Peter Sagal. All right, let's start the show. There it is. Hey, y'all. I'm Elise Hugh in for Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Not only is Sam away, but we are away from our home base in L.A. I didn't mean to rhyme there. (laughs) We're here at NPR member station WBEZ in Chicago, which brings me to our guests, Greta Johnson, host of WBEZ's Nerdette podcast. Hey, Greta. Hey. And Peter Sagal, host of a little public radio show you might know. If you're listening to this show on the radio, you might have actually heard Peter's show right before this one. What is it called? Wait, wait. Don't tell me. Oh, my God. You went there first off. Oh, well, you're getting you're getting me back for being late to the taping. And Peter, you regularly nerd out with Greta on uh, her Nerdette podcast. I do. I'm I'm a regular guest. I'm I'm the Tim Comway to her Carol Burnett. I love that. (laughs) Um, And y'all hosted a new podcast together called Nerdette Recaps His Dark Materials with Peter Sagal. Yes. Yeah, very SEO friendly in the title. Yeah, Yeah, I'm assuming that 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 has some like reason, like you put my name in the title because you want to differentiate it from the actual good Nerdette podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So people are warned that there's Peter Sagal content right off the top. Well, because originally we did put it in like the actual Nerdette feed when we started with Game of Thrones, and we did have like very loyal Nerdette Nerdette listeners who were like, "Why is Peter Sagal mansplaining Game of Thrones now? (laughs) This is not the show I signed up for." Right? You have a bit for when yes Peter gets to be a little bit. too much. Yeah, because I mean, the patriarchy speaking. Yep. So ladies, be quiet. Peter Sagal is the worst. <laughs> <Those> <laughs> and a patriarchy. Channel. And I say this. I say this. Aware of what it means. Those are my friends, the guys who did that. Uh, their names are Paul and Storm. Uh, they are a comedy singing duo, uh, also well-known for running the Joko Cruise. If you're a nerd and you want to go in a big boat with nothing but other nerds, those are the guys to talk to. I mean, they're great. It's a, it's just a, such a wonderful opportunity to call Peter on his nonsense. Can yeah. we hear it one more time? The patriarchy speaking, so ladies be quiet. Peter Sagal is the worst. I mean, it just says it all. You it really know? does. It's so catchy. They get stuck in your head. It's great. Now, I should say that I feel that they have gotten into the habit of overusing Yeah, them. he does like to say that. I feel you have to keep your powder dry. Uh-huh. I mean, if you, if yeah. you chop off my head, I soon will not have a head to chop off. I get it. He I keeps saying it. that, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe he shouldn't be talking so right. much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wait a minute. Here we are. I feel ganged up on. <laughs> so, y'all, this show is about catching up on the news and culture of the week. Of course, the big news was the U.S. conflict with Iran. And later in the show, we will talk to an Iranian-American journalist about how people in that country weather the cycles of imminent conflict with the U.S. that seem to kind of ebb and flow. But first, each week, we ask our guests to describe some news of the week in only three words. Greta, you're up first. I chose waiting for Time's Up. Time's Mm. Up being a hashtag, so technically that is still three words. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this week, uh, jury selection started for the trial of Harvey Weinstein. He's, of course, this, you know, formerly super successful Hollywood producer who was accused of decades of sexual abuse. More than 80 women have come forward accusing him of things The story broke, as you remember, this was kind of the beginning of the Me Too movement in October of 2017 in the New York Times and the New Yorker. So Harvey was finally charged with sex crimes in New York in May of 2018. So that in and of itself is, you know, about a year and a half ago. Uh, I'm not going to get into the charges, but they're horrible. 
Um, so yeah, jury selection started this week. And the other thing that also happened this week is that new charges were put against him in Los Angeles. So now he's facing the possibility of two criminal trials. Meanwhile, he just settled a civil suit a couple of weeks ago. So it's just all of this tumult around, you know, these very horrible allegations. And it's really one of the only, you know, men who is going through the criminal justice process in terms of all of these accusations. Yeah. And we should underline 80 women, you said, right? Yeah, Eight, yeah. zero. Eight, zero. And then we have these two, you know, criminal trials now. The one in New York, as I mentioned, we have two women pressing charges. One is un- unidentified there. And even in L.A., both of the women are unidentified in those court documents. So it's also just a big story in terms of, you know, what it takes to come forward. Yeah. You know, another interesting aspect during jury selection is, you know, the idea of trying to find an impartial jury in these cases, right? I mean... Not only are they trying to find people who don't know a whole lot about the story, which at this point is extremely difficult Mm -hmm. given the fact that it's been two more than two years and these stories were huge. But also, you know, attorneys are concerned about the possibility of having an impartial jury when, you know, one in five women has been raped in her life. Right. And just the idea of even if she isn't super familiar with the Weinstein story, just dealing with sexual assault in her life of either herself or someone she knows, like, could also create someone who is partial in one way or another. Uh, Ronan Farrow tweeted on Thursday night that he has heard that 50 potential jurors, 50, have been released so far because oh, yeah. they all read his book, Catch right. and Kill. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so it's, it's weird. Uh, the only thing I will add is that hearing the stories mm-hmm. of these women, yeah. you're not only struck by their ultimate bravery in coming forward at great risk for themselves, but just the, the endless amounts of people who right. protected Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, the systemic cover-ups you, over you, decades. You can't get away. Yeah, that's the horrifying part. Yeah, the, it's, yeah. And it's extraordinary how much and how pervasive that was among everybody, police and and colleagues. And attorneys. And, oh, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask this question about impartial jury and jury of our peers because when we talk when we are supposed to be having or be tried before a jury of our peers, so many of our peers have been victims of sexual mm-hmm. harassment or sexual assault. And so is it what does impartiality really mean here if you're throwing right. out all of the folks who might have been affected by crimes like this? Well, and I mean I think that gets to an even bigger question around just the idea of like is the does the criminal justice system work in these cases, yeah. you know? And you look at the fact that this settlement came out earlier this month where women at least got some money out of it. I mean, obviously that doesn't result in Weinstein actually going to jail, which I w- would imagine is extremely important to a lot of these victims. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you get an impartial jury. All right. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, here this week at NPR member station WBEZ with Greta Johnson, the host of the Nerdette podcast from BEZ, and Peter Sagal, host of the NPR news quiz show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Peter? You're up. You have three words on some news of the week. M- my words are somewhat ironic for anybody who knows me, uh, but they are get off Twitter. <laughs> and uh, this isn't just my usual disgust at myself for spending an entire week and not reading a damn thing except what was strolling through my phone. Uh-huh. This comes from a very odd experience I never expected to have, which is a friend of mine is running for president. Okay. That's uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I, can't, I don't claim to be his closest friend, but I know him. I've spent time with him and his husband. So fine. I don't know that my friend Mayor Pete is the best candidate. Mm -hmm. I'm not endorsing anybody. If I knew who'd be the best candidate, I'd make a lot of money with my knowledge. 
But watching how he has been discussed on Twitter, on social media, including by people who I know and admire, uh, it's just so weird to see how Twitter and maybe all social media just encourages this kind of, I don't know, boil of rage. These people decide they don't like Mayor Pete for whatever reason. They see something that makes him look negative. They go, yes, I knew it. They retweet it and that gets retweeted. And I'm actually... Uh, it's a little disorienting, and it, it strips makes, context. It that's strips, for sure. It strips yeah. all and so context. it decontextualizes it things. We then have to react quickly. It, it, it makes information instead of the service of actually finding out more, making informed decisions. It makes information the service of just fueling pre-existing partisan conditions. Well, I mean, people were even talking about that this week in terms of Iran because there was a lot of misinformation going out. An instant and it reaction. Takes, it's you can retweet something so quickly yeah. that all of a sudden, you know, the spread of misinformation information is just happening more and more effectively and we're just all complicit with it because we're just on Twitter. I that's guess. absolutely true, but it also it's it's not just about that. It's about what it does to you as a Twitter user as you as you're scanning for things that make you feel better about the opinions we already have. And I just don't think it's healthy. Are you actually getting off Twitter? I know. That's my question. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. I'm, you spend a I've, lot of time. Your three I words spend, are get uh, off Twitter. Uh, are uh, you uh, off Twitter? I, I, all I can tell you is uh, I, I know I should spend less time there. And, uh, and yet. Do you feel like you have to be very online? Well, I tell myself that. Although there are a lot of people in my business who do just fine without being on Twitter all the time. And maybe I should, uh, I mean, like, you know, Stephen Colbert tweets every, you know, week or so, and yet he manages to stay on top of the week's news. So maybe I should uh, And we have to that. remember that these social platforms, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Twitter, whether it's anything else, they operate on our brains, on our lizard brains, in a kind of slot machine way. Oh, yes, there's sure. intermittent reward, oh, God, and you have yeah. to check. It's, it's, and it's, yeah. So a neurologically, red, uh, a lot is happening. We're all doing that, that and, I, there, and so. I swear to you, there are rats, you know, we've heard about things who have, like, wires put into their directly into their brain's pleasure center and they can push a button to make it happen and, we, and we're told how they just stay there all day just hitting that button, hitting that button, never eating, never sleeping, hitting that button. Those rats look at me and they're like, that guy's got a problem. <laughs> but it is a new year, a new decade, and the first Friday weekly wrap of the year for this show. Wow. So it's a good time for us to sort of reset and ask the bigger question, okay. which is how do we ground ourselves? How do we steady ourselves mm. in this tumultuous world, in this tumultuous information ecosystem? I know what genuinely seems to work for my own peace of mind is to remember that we're all living in what is essentially a virtual world, right? We're all looking at Twitter or watching news or I guess even listening to NPR. And we're all getting incredibly emotionally involved in things we don't witness and people we don't know. And that's what's, I think, so both compelling and upsetting about it. Oh, my God, I can't believe that this person I don't know just did this to another person I don't know. Let me tweet about it all day. I think the solution to that is to sort of get involved in the things and people you are actually involved in. That you can see face to face. Yes, your family, your colleagues, your community. Every time I do that, every time I get off Twitter and go see a show, every time I get off Twitter and go talk to my friends, every time I get off Twitter and just read a book or write something, Mm -hmm. I feel so much better because you actually can deal with things in a rational way when you're not, as you indicated, being totally, you know, tempted by that that dopamine hit. Greta, what do you do to stay centered? Oh, man. I mean, it actually kind of reminds me of something a friend of mine posted on Facebook the other day, but I loved it. She's <laughs> back in my hometown. She was at this bookstore, 
And this little girl who she didn't know just like came up and tugged on her pants and she looked down at the girl and she said, have you seen the moon today? It's up. And like just for this random tiny stranger to come up to her and be like, hey, you should go look outside at this beautiful glowing orb. It's connecting to another human. You know, like I just thought it's connecting to another human. And it was just like what an amazing, weird, random reminder that like there's a lot of really beautiful stuff out there. And if we just take a minute to remember that, even that like will help reset you and like lower your blood pressure in such a real way. Time for a break. When we come back, how people in Iran and some Iranian Americans are feeling about the news of this week. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. Support also comes from Discover. Did you know that Discover matches all the cash back you earn at the end of your first year? Plus, it's automatic, and there's no limit to how much you can earn or how much they'll match. Millions of people a year are getting their cash back matched like rain falling from the sky. Cash back match only from Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash match. NPR's Life Kit wants to help you make changes that actually stick this new year. From how to do dry January to how to start a creative habit, we've got new episodes all month to help you start the year off right. New episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Listen and subscribe to Life Kit. Okay, we're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh in for Sam Sanders here this week at NPR member station WBEZ with Greta Johnson, the WBEZ host of the Nerdette podcast. Hey, Greta. Hey. Also here with Peter Sagal, host of the NPR news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, who, much like the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, is working hard to become financially independent. I'm doing what I can. Hi, Peter. Hi. (laughs) And I'm in Chicago in January. Which is really big for me because I vowed not to experience winter anymore after I moved back to the oh, States. That's why I live in Southern you. California. Right. So I landed here and I was like, what is this sub 65 degree weather? It's 50 degrees. It's 50 degrees. It's, it, this is not right. Are you bothered by this? Well, Wait, it's you're funny. bothered because it's warm? It's yeah, very warm. Yeah, this is January <laughs> in Chicago. Warm. It's supposed to be in the teens. It's supposed to, we're supposed to have snow on the ground. And we have not had a winter this year. Yeah, well, it's funny because it is like for real literally 40 degrees below zero in my hometown this week you're from alaska which is a lot fairbanks alaska Mm -hmm. so it's like literally 90 degrees warmer here so i actually cannot conscionably wear a coat right now like i brought a vest in oh i was looking for ear covers what is this when it's this warm (laughs) i cannot dress appropriately because it's just like solidarity with your alaskan yeah yeah so just as we were talking about this week was a lot Just days into the new year, President Trump ordered an airstrike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Then this past week, Iran launched missiles at the U.S. and its allies in Iraq. 
All of this news was a lot to process, but not just here in the States. There's a feeling of having been here so many times before and, and kind of disbelief that we're back, kind of facing such a massive confrontation. That's Azadeh Movani. She's an Iranian-American journalist who has written widely about the Middle East. Movani was born and raised in California. She's also lived at times, though, in Iran. So it gives her a unique perspective of two nations at odds for the past half century. She wrote about her identity straddling those two nations in the New York Times opinion section this week. So I got to ask her what she wanted readers to understand about this particular moment. Partly to understand that there was a long history to Iranians' perception of their country being in the crosshairs of the United States. Um, I think there's a lot of quick reaction, the idea that this general was a terrorist and that there's no more complexity to what's happened than that. And to kind of convey that each generation um, of us has had their lives touched by American interventions, coups, uh, overthrows, uh, meddling. And so we kind of bring to this moment a long and very personal history. Yeah, I'm I'm just going to read a little bit of what you wrote because I thought it was really beautiful. You write, The cycles of imminent war and upheaval Iranians seem destined to face every few years, cycles often driven by the whims of the United States and the increasing boldness of Iran, now feel like a civilizational inheritance, a legacy that my mother bore before me, her mother before her, and that I will pass down to my children. Every Iranian family's history is touched with this past in its own way. Um, I'd love to just hear more about your family's story And why you feel like you will have to pass this down to your children, too. Well, let's go back quickly to the early 1950s. Iran's prime minister was looking to nationalize Iran's oil, which at that time was largely controlled by concessions from the British. And Iran saw very little profit from it. Um, My grandfather worked for that government. My great uncle uh, was a minister in that government. Uh, In 1953, uh, irked that Iran was taking this path of independence. The United States, together with the UK, engineered a coup to overthrow that government. And that coup really upended uh, my family's life. I remember hearing stories about um, what it was like for my great uncle to be in hiding um, and my grandfather having to completely reinvent himself. Yeah, I can take us through to the 1970s, which was the next generation. And but there are stages and stages of it. And a lot of us in the West draw connections to 1979 when the Ayatollah came to power and Iran seized the U.S. embassy and held American embassy staff hostage for more than a year. Uh, You know, older Americans saw it reported on TV night after night. So is that a moment that you would point to? Or is there another moment of conflict for Iranians and Americans that might feel familiar? Shortly after uh, the revolution, Iraq invaded Iran. And those were years where uh, Iran was really alone. Um, Many families uh, had to flee. Tehran was under bombardment. um, And there was a sense that that this was supported by the U.S. At the end of the war, in 1989, there was a terrible incident that's just burned into the Iranian consciousness when the U.S. Navy uh, in the Persian Gulf shot down an Iranian passenger plane and 290 people were killed. Um, And You know, I think that's a moment everyone heard about growing up. Um, The idea that the captain was clearly very irresponsible, but President Reagan awarded the whole crew with medals and honors. And and George Bush, who was vice president at the time, refused to apologize for 290 civilians, you know, being blown out of the air. Um, And so we remember these things, too. I mean, they're all kind of milestones that 
you know, the Iranian consciousness today retains with it. Right. There's so much context to this history that, you know, in these moments, we often don't take into full account, is what I'm hearing you say. And so fast forward to today, where um, Qasem Soleimani, who was obviously a controversial figure, but also, you know, a leader in, and seen as a defender of Iran. Um, how have the members of the Iranian-American community that you're in touch with, how have they reacted to the Soleimani killing? There is certainly a diversity of views, um, but I would say that many have felt, like many Iranians inside the country, a real outrage that a war hero, who was also a senior government official, was assassinated like this. Um, we kind of brought ourselves into the present, but, you know, of course, Soleimani, you know, fought that eight-year war with Iraq. Right. So I think he's remembered for that, and he's remembered for the fight against ISIS. So I think for many Iranian-Americans who might even be deeply ambivalent about the government of Iran, who might resent it, I think there's a real sense of people kind of coming together at a time of crisis. Um, you know, Iran is a country with a long historical memory and a really specific idea of itself. And I think Iranian-Americans carry that with them um, and feel very connected to Iran in times like this. Azadeh, you mentioned that Iran kind of has an idea of itself. Can you elaborate on what that idea is? So Iran is one of the oldest continuous civilizations in the world. Uh, for 2,500 years, at the very least, it's had a continuous kingship from cities like Persepolis, bound together by a language. I think the Persian language is, is one of the binding uh, sort of aspects of Iranian identity, that the epic poetry uh, that's handed down, uh, the Shahnameh, if you've heard, the Book of Kings, it, it's kind of like the Persian Bhagavad Gita, uh, it, it enshrines sort of Iran's pre-Islamic uh, identity and history of kingship um, in this epic long poem. And this kind of history of having a role in the region. It, it had empires, it was invaded many times, but it survived. It, it didn't lose its kind of essential Iranianness. When you talk about essential Iranianness, what qualities are you referring to? First of all, uh, the Persian language, which is, of course, uh, kind of the binding civilizational inheritance of Iran, the poetry of Rumi, the poetry of Hafez. Um, I think you can compare Iran to a civilization like Britain that has had Shakespeare and the Anglo-Saxon language and goes back to Chaucer. It kind of traces itself through its literature. Uh, yeah. Iran is, is similar. Um, and then also the kind of notion of Iran as a Persian power. Uh, it has a pre-Islamic past and it was also a great Shia civilization that became uh, Muslim in the 7th century. So there's the idea of Iran as a Persian nation and there's Iran in, as an Islamic power. Uh, so I think this is quite uh, an essential kind of aspect of Iranianness. these kind of two poles of its history. The rest of the Middle East um, was largely carved up by British colonial powers after World War One. Like these countries, uh, like Iraq, I mean, they didn't exist. And I think that's why they really struggle because their national identity is really fragile. And Iran is, I think, kind of singular in that way. I really was curious about the diaspora because there are so many Iranian-Americans and those of Persian ancestry in the United States. And now Iranians, again, are having to face this unfortunate fate of being othered by the top of the U.S. government. Um, we rightly focus a lot of attention in the Mideast right now. But what are your concerns for Iranian-Americans here in the States or just in the West in this time of tension? 
I mean, I worry in in lots of ways. I mean, there's these reports that Iranian Americans have been detained or interrogated um, at at border crossings and at airports. I think there's enough reports of that to see that there's a real worry that, you know, Iranian Americans could be targeted by Homeland Security or by other parts of the American security establishment as as kind of punishment for simply being Iranians Mm. at at the wrong time. But I guess... For me, you know, having grown up in the 80s during the hostage crisis, when I was embarrassed to say that I was Iranian because people associated being Iranian with those people on the television that were, you know, they looked like barbarians. They were holding Americans hostage. Um, And I think there is that sense that, you know, this generation of Iranian American kids will grow up with the same feeling like, you know, they're enemy number one. What about the young people of Iran? You've written a lot about them in the early 2000s when there was a lot of a lot more hope, maybe, for more freedom and more connection with the world. So what does an event like this that becomes very nationalistic, especially in Iran, what does an event like this do, do you think? I think young people bring to it a lot of anger, humiliation, mourning at, at dashed hopes. I think this is another young generation of Iranians who hope that they would be able to engage with the world, study abroad, travel. I mean, to encounter these U.S. sanctions that are, you know, targeting almost everything, you know, inflation is rampant. There's a real sense of devastation at the country's social development being extinguished again uh, for another generation. You know, who else in the 21st century is, is threatened with their cultural heritage being destroyed? Azadeh Movani is a senior gender analyst with the International Crisis Group and the author, most recently, of Guest House for Young Widows, Among the Women of ISIS. Azadeh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I did as well. Thanks again to Azadeh Movani. Her article in the New York Times is called The Day After War Begins in Iran. Time for a break. When we come back, we turn the tables and make Peter Sagal take a news quiz. (laughs) I was not warned about this. We'll see how he does after the break. I'm Elise Hugh. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. News breaks and big stories change every day. That's why we're giving you NPR's 10-minute morning news podcast on Saturdays, too. I'm Scott Simon. And I'm Lulu Garcia-Navarro. Up first, start your day with us weekdays at 6 Eastern and Saturdays at 8, a bit later to suit your weekend from NPR News. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, here this week at NPR member station WBEZ with Greta Johnson, the WBEZ host of the Nerdette podcast. Hey, Greta. Hey. Also here with Peter Sagal, host of the NPR News Quiz show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Hey, Elise. Peter, Y'all... did you just check Twitter? No, I just turned off Peter my phone. Peter just got... Oh, okay. Because I was realized Sorry. I hadn't done that. Okay. I just that saw you take be... it out. I was like, is it really that bad, man? It's, pre- it's pretty bad, but in that particular instance, I was not busted. He doesn't call himself an addict. Uh, right. I know. No addict no, does. No, fine. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, you two ready for a little host-on-host battle? <laughs> <laughs> it's time for Who Said That? Who said that? Who said that? It's a simple game. I will share a quote from the week. You guess who said it, or at least the story I'm referring to. Best two out of three wins nothing. (laughs) Unlike Peter's show, there's no timer. There's no audience here to applaud you. 
So the pressure is pretty low. Can I confess something? Okay. It's not really a confession because to me it's obvious. There is no timer on our show. Every week I say the clock will start. There's no clock. <laughs> it's like a running joke. And, and, right? and, and for many years I'm like, why am I still saying there's a clock? Well, there is no clock. And then it just became a thing that I do. I will invoke the, the mythical clock yeah. every week because I'd miss it if I didn't. Okay, so let me start the clock now. Please. Great. For who said that. Okay. Because yes. now we're going to have a mythical clock here <laughs> and give you quote number one. Okay. I put the art in fart. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I feel embarrassed that I don't know this. This is my wheelhouse, fart humor on public yeah. radio. <laughs> I'm really surprised. I have I no, I'm trying, sure no, I, just, I don't know who it is. I'm trying to figure out who fart. it might be, the art in fart. And, yeah. But by fart, did he mean fart, the expulsion well, of intestinal gas, or is it something else? I think it's, it's flatulence. Probably it's probably a literal fart, right? Yeah, probably. I put the art in fart. <laughs> it's funny nothing. just okay, to hear I'm gonna give you a say hint. it over and over again. Someone who just announced he's going to be a dad for the seventh time. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I still have no idea. Yeah, I just... Involved in space, solar panels, oh, and... Oh, Tesla, dude. Oh, my gosh. Elon Musk? That was an Elon Musk tweet. I'm surprised you missed <laughs> oh, it. Oh, no. Yes, of wow. course. Now I remember seeing it. And people are like, what's wrong with Elon Musk? Yeah, so usually in Who Said That, we give you more context about the quote itself. But in this case... There's, There's no really context. <laughs> no context. Okay, that one went to Greta. Yes. yes. Okay, best two out of three. Here we go. Hey, babe, I made you a bitchin' mixtape to play on this Sony item that dominated the 80s and began in the U.S. as the, quote, soundabout. Wow. Wow. Okay, here's your hint. Phrase your answer in the form of a question. Um, well, hold on. So if you have to phrase this, obviously reference to Jeopardy. Yes, Alex Trebek. Oh, I think Greta gets that one too. Oh, she absolutely does. I did actually. Like I you served set her it up. up, right? You set her I up. I tossed her the ball for her to it. hit it out of the right. park. <laughs> want an assist at least. So during a clue on Jeopardy, the greatest of all time, mm. it's a series going on this week featuring the major Jeopardy winners, including Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter and James Holzhauer. Trebek said "bitchin" for the first time, and everyone freaked out. Here it is. Hey, babe. I made you a bitchin' mixtape to play on this Sony item that dominated the 80s and began in the U.S. as the soundabout. So usually I That's really adorable. like it when, or I think it's hilarious when Alex Trebek like overpronounces yes. French. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, yeah. Bichon. Right, exactly. That would have been better if he would have taken <laughs> bitchin' and then did it in it's, his... In his authentic <laughs> French accent. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Mr. Jennings, I haven't been watching, but he's been dominating. And I should say, by the way, Ken is a friend of mine. Yes, and he's smug about it. Is he really? No. Super smug about it. Yeah, yeah. he's kind of a smug like, guy. Kind of like wait, even though he knows the answer. Oh, I see Ooh. what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, do you all know the answer to that clue? The Jeopardy answer. Um, say, hey, babe, I made you a bitchin' mixtape to play on the Sony item that dominated the '80s and began in the U.S. as the soundabout. Uh, what, what is, is the, the Walkman? Walk Correct. Partial Peter Sagal for 200 and a game that we're not playing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> the clock's still running. <laughs> Quote number three. <laughs> You can't come and stay with us for a week and not make any videos. It's not going to work. This whole house is designed for productivity. Ooh, God. I don't oh, know, boy. but that's unpleasant. I, I feel so much better that you're as puzzled by this as I am because I don't feel as old I and out of it as I was worried that you were going to win all It is a teen. Yeah. It's a teen. Do you know the story? You don't have to know the actual person who gave the quote. You can know the story. Is it the person who like disappeared and then came back as a new famous Instagram person? God, it's... <laughs> oh, no. That was sad. <laughs> Incorrect. Sad yeah. So I'm assuming it's a, a young influencer type person. I naturally assume those are Kardashians. Is it, a Kardashian? Is it one in this case? You're kind of like warm. 
Uh huh. But not, not close enough. Yeah. It's a 17 year old TikTok star oh. named Chase Hudson, and he's talking about the Hype House, which was his idea, reported in the New York Times this week. It's a bunch of teenage social media stars who go in on a giant rented mansion in LA where they do nothing but make TikTok videos all day, and they are viewed hundreds of millions of times. I literally had the conversation last night with Luke Burbank when I said, What is TikTok? And he oh. couldn't explain it. He just said it's like this endless machine for generating and improving on memes. (laughs) Chase, this kid who gave the quote, he's the group's unofficial talent scout, and he says, if you want to be a viral star, you have to have a lot of energy and personality and honestly be a little weird. Weird people get the furthest on the internet, which explains your success, Peter. Yes. No, I'm not an I'm not an internet person. I'm a success in an early 20th century technology. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Listen to me, and you're crystal set. <laughs> and congratulations, Greta! Oh, you won. Thank you. You she won dominated. nothing. Feels good. I'll Congrats take all it. The same. <laughs> that concludes. Who said that? I'll stop the clock. Now it's time to end the show, as we always do. Each Friday, we ask you to share with us the best thing that happened to you all week. We encourage you to brag, and you do, and I love it. Let's listen to a few. This is Tara from Colorado, and the best part of my week was getting a new microwave. It's a little amazing how expensive those suckers are, so I had to save up and buy it for my birthday. So when anyone asks me if I feel like I'm really 31, I have to say yes, because my birthday presents are now appliances. This is Erica in Atlanta, Georgia. It's Laura from Warren, Michigan. This is Bronwyn from Denver, Colorado. And the best part of my week was... I got my first job after finishing my degree over a year ago. Taking and passing my licensing exam to become a psychologist. The best part of my week was finally finding out that my consulting gig that I've had for the last eight months will turn into a full-time permanent position with benefits starting next week. It's Laura Barta from Hershey, Pennsylvania. The best thing that happened to me this week is that I just got back from a family trip to Japan with my husband and my two grown children. The best thing that happened this week is that I spent a week in Mexico City with my boyfriend. We had a really amazing time. We left our work at home and we learned a lot about a new place. It's Tab calling from Painted Post, New York. And the best part of my week is that my four-year-old daughter started pre-K on Monday and she told my husband she was more excited for this than she was for Santa. This is Amy calling from Australia, where I'm sure you know our beautiful country has been fighting some unprecedented fires, but it's now 1.44 in the morning and I have just woken up to the sound of rain. It won't fix it all, but man, it feels good to hear that rain. Thank you so much for your show. Have a great week. Bye. Well, I feel better about everything. Thank you to those listeners. Tara, Erica, Laura, Bronwyn, Laura number two, Dean, Tab, and Amy. And thank you for sharing your best thing with us. We listen to them all, even if we can't play them all here on the show. To share your own, record an audio file and email it to the show at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. That's a wrap, y'all. I want to say thanks so much to our guests here. Greta Johnson, WBEZ host of the Nerdette podcast. Thanks, Greta. Hey, thank you. And Peter Sagal, host of the NPR News Quiz show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Thank you both. My pleasure. Do you know this is the studio where Wait, Wait started? The no way. The first way. episode of the, this. Really? It was a studio show for the first 
seven years, and this was the studio. So <laughs> wow, we I was in... sitting in your chair the first day I hosted this radio show. Twenty-two history years was ago. made here. History was Public made. Amazing media history yeah. was made in this very room. And I was usually alone because our guests. You were, were in studio what about for Carl? seven Carl? years. Not every week, but we were uh, primarily in studio show for seven years. Carl was in Washington. The oh, panelists right. were spread wherever they were. Our guests were on the phone. So I've been sitting here by myself and having my producers were sitting where Colin is staring at me through the glass, totally unsmiling. Colin's our engineer. And uh, it, 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 it was the closest I've ever smile. come to be like, you know, put to death by lethal injection. Just sitting in here looking at unsmiling pe- people. Yeah, Colin is making no facial expression still. Yeah. yeah. That's so, his job. So there's a big bank of incredibly obsolete um, tape decks. There's like reels on it. Yes. Reel to reel. And my senior producer that's at the time who was very, very emotional. Whenever he got upset about something that was happening or I was doing, he'd go and hide behind really? the, oh, that that's big amazing. bank so I couldn't see him make faces. This wow. is so good. I love I'm this kind story. Of I'm kind of surprised you didn't come room. closer and make faces. Well, not everybody. Because like, we haven't wound up in any <laughs> studio today, but we're winding <laughs> up in the one where, wait, wait, don't tell me I was born. That's amazing. Peter, I think you should delete the Twitter app from your phone. Really? So yeah. that I can't do it? That, yeah, I, those I, were your three words. Those you were know? my three words. Just to get started on it. Like, just, you can still okay. check it on your desktop, just not on the phone, you know? You're probably right. Yeah. But what if something happens and I miss it? It's fine. Just do it right now. You want me to do <laughs> All right. I'm going to do... Uh, we're yeah. going to actually do this. I'm yeah. going to delete yep. the Twitter app on my yep. phone and do see it. how long I survive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Peter's going to do that. I'm going to read the credits. <laughs> it's Been a Minute was produced this week by Anjali Sastry, Danny Hensel, and Brent Bachman. Our editor is Kitty Isley. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. The senior vice president of programming at NPR is Anya Grunman. And special thanks to the folks at member station WBEZ here in Chicago for hosting us this week, including our engineer, Colin, who is still expressionless. (laughs) I'm Elise Hugh. I am back in the host chair next week. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at EliseWHO because I don't have an addiction. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. (laughs) 